Now let's open our Bibles once again to the ninth chapter of the book of Romans. This, I think, is the fifth sermon on Romans 9, and there will be one more after this. A brief look at Romans 9, 19 through 29 tonight. Calvinist-like things straightened up. Romans 9, 19 and following. By the way, we come in, uh, in Vespers to the seventh chapter of the book of Isaiah uh, this coming Wednesday as we work our way through Isaiah. So you'll hear more music generally connected to Christmas. And uh, then, of course, we come to chapter 9, and we'll do the same thing when we come to the ninth chapter The last two hymns that we've sung tonight have been hymns that have been introduced through Vespers and into into our services. Romans chapter 9, beginning with verse 19. May the Lord bless this reading and exposition of His holy word. You will say to me then, why does He still find fault? For who can resist His will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in every place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. As Isaiah, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. You know, all of us are formed, I think, by the Lord and His providence bringing certain people, themes, ideas, books into our lives. I've been formed by having blessed, been blessed to uh, sit under Sinclair Ferguson and Richard Gaffin and Bob Lethem and others. But also, one of the things that I noted very early in my Christian life was something missing that I found in some of the some of the old preachers. And that was the Pauline note. I wasn't hearing it in the churches in which I grew up. Uh, There was this great note of the sovereignty of God and the salvation of sinners that was so clearly revealed in the Bible and so clearly, I think, on every page of Scripture, but was missing in the church. And yet, when I went, for example, to the two-volume biography of D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, there's a chapter called the Pauline Note. What he rediscovered early in his ministry 
was this idea, this concept of grace alone, salvation by grace alone, that was simply missing in the preaching of his day. Or before him, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Spurgeon, of course, when he came to know the Lord, uh, had a great uh, Puritan background from his grandfather and from the library of his grandfather. And when he began to preach in London, uh, people would walk out saying, we've never heard anything like this. And those were people who were favorable and people who were not favorable. Uh, People drawn by grace to trust in Christ through this powerful preaching of the sovereignty of God and people who walked out and said, I won't have it, will have nothing to do with the preaching of the sovereignty of God. And yet it's not found only in the ninth chapter of the book of Romans. It's found everywhere. And of course, in the ninth chapter of the book of Romans, we have been seeing it now for several weeks as we actually bump our heads against the ceiling and we come to this chapter that takes us, I think, just as nearly to the eternal decree of God as any chapter permits in Holy Scripture. Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? That's the question that is found in the passage. So let's begin, first of all, with an objection, an objection answered. The objection, of course, In verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Now remember the background of this is the sovereign mercy that he has shown to his people in bringing them out of Egyptian bondage and the way in which he has shown his power in the reprobation of Pharaoh. And so the question is, since God is sovereign in these matters, you will say to me then, why does he yet find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? So they're questioning the justice of God. Now the interesting thing about Paul's answer as they are questioning the justice of God is that Paul doesn't argue the point. He doesn't bring to them any any great philosophical premise. He doesn't argue the point from even an apologetical standpoint. He simply asks a question in order to make a statement. Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? His answer then is far from debate, but simply the affirmation that the potter has the right over the clay. Now, of course, in the book of Jeremiah, there are passages that are similar to this, but I think that Paul is primarily referencing actually Isaiah chapter 29 verse 16. And in Isaiah 29:16, the writer says, "Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us and who knows us, you turn things upside down, shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker?" He did not make me, or the thing formed, say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. So this 8th century B.C. prophet Isaiah references the sovereignty of God using this metaphor of the potter over the clay. The same thing is found in Isaiah again in uh, the 45th chapter, verse 9 where Isaiah, this is where Isaiah the prophet prophesies the coming of Cyrus as God's instrument of judgment. 
And he says, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen vessels. Does the clay say to him who forms it, Why are you making, what are you making, or your work has no handles? And so the Apostle Paul is referencing these passages in his argument. Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay one vessel for honor and another to dishonor? Now by the same lump of clay, what Paul would have us to understand is the same mass of fallen sinful human beings, those whom he would consider from eternity to be fallen in their sins, we're all of the same mass of clay. Now that's an extremely important point for us to grasp. For when we talk about God's sovereign love for his people and his effectual call that stems out of his electing love, what we are saying is that it is all of grace. He does not save us because we are somehow better than others. If I am not reprobate, it is only because God in his sovereignty chose not to leave me in my sin and reached down in sovereign love to save. It has nothing to do with, with our being better. It's grace from beginning to end. And the reason that this is so important, and I think one of the reasons that the ninth chapter is here, is to humble us into the very dust. That's the place where the Christian life begins. That's the place where our Christian lives should continue. And it is there that our Christian lives will end and continue on in eternity to come. Humbled into the dust that God would save me, that God would rescue me, that God would redeem me. It's an amazing thing to consider. God owes nothing to rebellious criminals. Please understand it and let it be well, well grasped. God owes nothing to rebellious criminals except the exercise of his justice. So if he makes one, even one, a vessel of mercy, it is grace undeserved. And that's Paul's perspective. Had the Lord made all to be vessels of wrath on the potter's wheel, it would have been just as he considers the lump of clay as the fallen mass of humanity. So keep in mind, man considered as fallen deserves God's infinite displeasure. This demands the exercise of his justice. And the way in which he has exercised his justice to us, who are called by his name, is to have exercised his justice in the punishment of his son as our substitute in our place. In order that as he has loved us forever, he might save us from our awful, awful sins. Now you know as well as I do that in this man-centered age in which we live, in which everything revolves around man, my feelings, my ideas, what makes me happy. And as the church has succumbed to this, and I can say, I can say quite, quite thoroughly that as I was growing up in the churches in which I grew up, and I know this to be the case for many others, I never heard these texts touched on, never heard them preached. And on those rare occasions in which they were read, they were sloughed over or explained away. But it's not popular, and the cry goes up that it destroys evangelism. That's what we always hear. Well, I would remind you that this letter 
written by Paul, the apostle, is written by divine inspiration by probably the greatest evangelist the church has ever known. The one who preaches in this passage the sovereignty of God and the salvation of sinners is the greatest evangelist that the church has ever known. He's never been equaled. As a matter of fact, what the book of Romans is on one level is a letter of introduction so that when he gets to Rome and becomes acquainted, he has many acquaintances there, but becomes acquainted with the church as a whole, they will support him in his passionate desire to go to Spain where he may preach the gospel there. He tells us that in the 15th chapter. He can't, he can't contain, he so loves to preach the gospel and he knows that God has a people. The difference between Paul's evangelism and our evangelism is that Paul is motivated not first and foremost by the salvation of the sinner. I'm not suggesting that is not a very important theme under the great theme. But what motivates him in his evangelism is the glory of God. Why missions? The glory of God. So that God will be glorified. So that his name will be exalted. And God tells us in no uncertain terms in this passage that that is the whole point. And we will see it before this evening is out. The Lord may use this truth of the preaching of the sovereignty of God and the salvation of the sinner to do the very thing lost sinners need. And what do lost sinners need? It is to have their confidence completely shattered their confidence in their own ability completely devastated so that the sinner may by God's grace see his need of grace alone. That's the great need. That's why Mr. Spurgeon could say, I would preach a sermon that was calculated to the salvation of sinners. That was its aim. And no one came to faith in Christ. I would preach a sermon for the comfort of God's people on electing grace on the sovereignty of God and salvation, and all of these people would come to faith in Christ. Why? Because they were humbled by this truth. God used this truth to humble them in the dust. That's what I long to see, and that is that for which I pray. Spurgeon made this comment. He said, I could not preach like an Arminian. What the Arminian wants to do is to rouse man's activity. What we want to do is to kill it once for all. To show him that he is lost and ruined, and that his activities are now are not now at all equal to the work of conversion. That he must look upward. They seek to make man stand up. We seek to bring him down and make him feel that there he lies in the hand of God, and that his business is to submit himself to God and cry aloud, Lord, save or we perish. We hold that man is never so near grace as when he begins to feel he can do nothing at all. Did you hear that? We hold that man is never so near grace as when he begins to feel that he can do nothing at all. When he says, I can pray, I can believe, I can do this, I can do the other, marks of self-sufficiency and arrogance are on his brow. And I think Mr. Spurgeon is reflecting exactly Paul's point here. So, an objection answered. You say God is not just... Paul sweeps it away and he says, God, the just God, is the sovereign God. And does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Second thing, vessels of mercy, vessels of mercy. 
Now let's read again verses 22 to 24. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has before prepared or prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom He called, not of the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Now let me summarize, I think, what's going on here in these verses in this way. Against the backdrop of vessels of wrath, God's mercy stands out to those who are called. Let me say it again. Against the backdrop of vessels of wrath, His mercy stands out to those who are called. So the first thing He does is to show the backdrop of vessels of wrath. Now, verses 22 to 24 constitute in the Greek New Testament a sentence that doesn't have a proper subject and is called, we sometimes call it an anakaluthan, which means that Paul is running on with excitement. Basically, he is so thrilled with his truth, he is so moved by the reality of it that he's not even careful about his grammar. And he speaks of God's patience in punishing vessels of wrath. Remember, against the backdrop of vessels of wrath, his mercy stands out. So he speaks of God's patience in punishing vessels of wrath. Vessels of wrath such as Pharaoh, whom he has mentioned already, who has been warned and warned and who has been unrepentant, has been prepared for destruction. John Murray, I think, makes an excellent comment when he says, the main thought is that the destruction meted out to the vessels of wrath is something for which there precedent condition suits them. There is an exact correspondence between what they were in this life and the perdition to which they are consigned. This is another way of saying, listen to this, this is an awesome statement. This is another way of saying that there is continuity between this life and the lot of the life to come. Continuity between this life and the life that is to come. And so choosing to show his wrath and to make his power known as with Pharaoh who was warned over and over again as he says in verses 17 and 18 for the scripture says to Pharaoh for this very purpose I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So against the backdrop of the vessels of wrath he now shows he now shows how mercy stands out so he goes on to say to make known the riches of his glory that has been lavished upon the vessels of mercy was it not in god's patience to pharaoh that god's mercy was manifest to his people what if god desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction like Pharaoh. And in showing patience to Pharaoh or to vessels of wrath, he does this, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So the riches of his glory, again Murray, the vessels of wrath can be said to fit themselves for destruction. They are agents of the demerit which reaps destruction, but only God prepares for glory. 
The figure of the potter is applied without reserve. Vessels unto honor correspond to vessels prepared to glory. You people of God are of the same mass of humanity as everyone else who has fallen. And yet God has placed you upon his potter's wheel. And he has lovingly fashioned you to be a vessel, not of wrath, but to display his mercy and to show forth his grace. And that's precisely the point, of course, in the passage that we studied earlier in Romans 8. When we read the familiar passage in Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What's the purpose? That, you, that, that Christ might be exalted as the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Or do you remember in Ephesians, the second chapter, by grace are you saved through faith. In that, not of yourselves, it is the work of God. <clears throat> it is <clears throat> that, not of yourselves, it is, <clears throat> it is the work of God. The gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And in verse 10 he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. So God placed you upon the potter's wheel, saved you by grace, and has formed you and your circumstances in such a way that rather than displaying wrath, you will display the mercy of God that has been poured out upon you. And so, against the backdrop of vessels of wrath, his mercy stands out to those called. And so he says in verse 24, even us whom he has called, and calling in Paul always is effectual. Paul doesn't use the term calling to mean the general preaching of the gospel. Always in Paul it is effectual. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Effectual, irresistible grace from Jews and Gentiles, forming, as is plain in Paul, one people of God. Now that's the Pauline note, that God's grace goes forth and calls Jew and Gentile, forming them into one people of God. But then we see a third thing in this passage, and that is Old Testament confirmation of God's sovereign grace. Old Testament confirmation of God's sovereign grace. We see it in verses 25 and 26. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people I will call my people, and her who is not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. So he goes all the way back to the first couple of chapters of the book of Hosea, the 8th century prophet. And you remember how Hosea the prophet was told to take a wife of harlotry, how rebellious she was, and how the Lord brought children into the world through her, And the first child was Lo Ruchama, not my loved one. And the second child was Lo Ami, not my people. 
And Paul says precisely what Hosea does in chapter 1, verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And so what Hosea says is what Paul says is also said in 1 Peter that the Gentiles who were not God's people, who had no place in God's purpose, and who were not His loved one, that God has had an eternal purpose of showing His love to Gentiles whom He has chosen and to make them His people. The cause of salvation for Jew and Gentile in both cases is the sovereign love of God. So in verses 27 and 28, He goes on with Old Testament backdrop. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and like Gomorrah. Now in Romans 9, 27, and 28, the Apostle Paul is citing Isaiah 10, 22, and 23, when Assyria will devastate Israel and they will be reduced to a remnant. And the sovereign God is shown in the salvation of the remnant. So that he says in verse 29, if the Lord of hosts had not left us an offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Election is a work to save A remnant, Paul says, not only then, but that same principle is at work now. And as the Apostle Paul works this out, it will be shown to us very clearly in chapter 11, verses 5 and 6 of Romans, when Paul says, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. So Paul says this Old Testament background simply illustrates again the same theme, the same idea of the potter with the clay. That those who are not his people will be his people. Those who are not loved indeed were loved of him by eternity, from eternity, and will be a part of that remnant, which is no small remnant, but will include a multitude which no man can number from every tongue, tribe, kindred, and nation on the earth. So that when the gospel goes forth and is preached today, the Lord is gathering unto himself that remnant whom he has determined to save. Now let me bring some final thoughts. And let me do it in this way. Let me say, first of all, I think one of the themes that we should take from this passage and apply to our hearts and should really fill to overflowing our hearts with praise and be a part of our devotional life and should influence how we think and act and all that we do is simply this. If God had left us to ourselves we would have been just like the reprobate. If we are vessels of mercy, it is because God has been merciful to us 
not because of anything in us. We are, let me repeat, of the same lump of clay. We are not different because of anything natively within us. We are not better. We are graced. If I may say, we are mercied. The thought humbles us and should thrill our souls. He chose me? Ill-deserving me? Meritless me? Sinful me? As deserving as the next man of eternal damnation? He chose me for fellowship with him? Why did he do it? Why did he love me? And all we can say is, he loved me because he loved me. It's not because of anything within me, but it's altogether out of the fullness of his own sovereign grace and mercy. I hope that thrills you. I hope it humbles you. I hope that it brings you to your knees. I hope that when you're on your knees tonight or tomorrow before the Lord, one of the great thoughts that will permeate you, your, your mind and your, your soul will be, Lord, I'm no more deserving than this person for, for whom I'm praying that's lost. And yet you showed mercy to me. And that's where our hope is. Second thing I want to say by way of application is we struggle a great deal. I use the term struggle somewhat advisedly, but we struggle a great deal with the so-called problem of evil. How do we explain evil in the world, in a world in which God is sovereign, and a world in which, of course, God displays his mercy, and in which, of course, he is always good? And the typical answer is to say, we don't know. It's incomprehensible, and there's much truth there. Anything relating to the person of, of Christ and the work that he has done and the greatness of his sovereignty and who God is, all of this is going to be, on one level, incomprehensible. But I want to emphasize that the problem of evil is no problem for God. And just as at the end of Job, Job is able to contrast himself with God's majesty, as God, in essence, says... It should be enough for you that I know the answer to the problem. So in this passage, he gives us that, but also a little more. The Lord has revealed to us the overarching, comprehensive answer to the question right here in verses 22 and 23, hasn't he? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? The Lord has revealed to us the overarching, comprehensive answer to the question of the problem of evil. And what is that answer? To manifest the glory of his own character and attributes. God hates sin, but yes, it does have a purpose in his plan. He despises it, and yet it's no accident in God's purpose. As a matter of fact, in verse 17, where it says, uh, For Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. 
Verse 17 actually is a middle voice to demonstrate for myself. And so God is concerned to demonstrate his own character even in the reprobation of the wicked and the salvation of the elect and all that happens in history in the dividing of those into those who will be with him in eternity and those who will not. To his own attributes, to his own glory, God is directing all that tends in the world. And he desires to manifest the riches of his glory and grace. So at the end of time, when we stand on the day of judgment, and we stand before the Lord completely just and acquitted, dressed in the righteousness of Christ, and the reprobate go to hell forever because of their sin, and it's always because of sin. It's never an arbitrary act. The reprobate will proclaim the justice of God. The saved will be used of God to proclaim His grace and His mercy. And if you'll pay, go to page 850 in the backs of your hymnal... Just to read paragraphs 5 and 7. Chapter 3 of God's eternal decree, paragraphs 5 and 7. Now you can read silently, but read with me. Chapter 3, paragraph 5. Those of mankind, are you there? This is page 850, paragraph 5, chapter 3. Those of mankind that are predestined unto life, God before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory, out of his mere free grace and love, without any foresight of faith or good works or perseverance in either of them, or any other thing in the creature as conditions or causes moving him thereunto, and all to the praise of His glorious grace. So God chose His people without any consideration of anything within us whatsoever that He might display His sovereign grace. And then we come to paragraph 7. The rest of mankind God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of His own will whereby he extendeth or withholdeth mercy as he pleaseth, for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by, and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin, to the praise of his glorious justice. Those then who will perish in their sin, God will display as justice. Those chosen by grace, will display the beauties of the Lord's grace and mercy. And there you have it. That's not the only note that should be sung by the Christian, but it is an essential note. I say this lastly, 
to repeat myself intentionally. Here is or ought to be the power of the church's evangelism, the great motive for our evangelism. Because God has chosen that his gospel go forth, that gospel be preached, that the elect be drawn in order that through the foolishness of preaching he might save them, and that forever and ever and ever God's people manifest his grace. And Mr. Spurgeon, one more time, the greatest missionaries that have ever lived, says Mr. Spurgeon, the greatest missionaries that have ever lived have believed in God's choice of them. And instead of this doctrine leading to inaction, it has ever been an irresistible motive, power, and it will be so again. It was the secret energy of the Reformation. It is because free grace has been put into the background that we have seen so little done in many places. It is in God's hand, the great force which can stir the church of God to its utmost depth. It may not work superficial revivals, but for deep work it is invaluable. Side by side with the blood of Christ, it is the world's hope how men can say that the doctrine of distinguishing grace makes men careless about souls. Did they ever hear of the evangelical band which was called the Clapham sect? Was Whitfield a man who cared nothing for the salvation of the people? He who flew like a seraph throughout England and America, unceasingly proclaiming the grace of God, was he selfish? Yet he was distinctly a free grace preacher. Did Jonathan Edwards have no concern for the souls of others? Oh, how he wept and cried and warned them of the wrath to come. Time would fail me to tell of the lovers of men who have been the lovers of this truth. This truth, rightly, rightly gleaned from Scripture and rightly understood, when it becomes part of the passion of a man's heart, doesn't hinder you from calling sinners to Christ. It gives you hope when you call sinners to Christ, because apart from it, dead sinners will never come. And God's people said, Amen.